Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. If you have a question, we'd love to have you submit your question. You can submit it by putting the word question or a question mark or a Q in front of it, and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times to make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. And also put the references that you have from the scriptures. Now, our first question today comes from a question that we've had from our recent Bible studies out of the book of Luke. We've been talking about the last days. We've been talking about Jesus, talking about the last days. Uh, And so I had someone ask if we could clarify the difference between the latter days and the latter years. There's also references that we find in the Bible, not only to the latter years and the latter days, but the latter times. And it's easy to understand why people would be confused about this and what to expect from it. So let me put a couple of scriptures I prepared up on the screen for you. Get there, okay? And uh, so, first of all, Acts 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost that started the last days. This simply means it's the church age, and that's going to wrap things up. The only thing that's going to happen after the church age is the resurrection of all of the saints ever since the beginning of the world, right before the tribulation period. The exciting thing about the rapture is not that we are going to escape the tribulation period. That is exciting. I don't want to go through it, but we want people to be saved from it. The exciting thing about the rapture is it's a resurrection. And all who have fallen asleep or died in Christ will be resurrected, including all the Old Testament saints. And that will be the beginning of the tribulation period, which is the last seven years. And that's the last of the last days. But listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2, 16 and 17. Peter is being questioned about what's going on when the Holy Spirit is poured down upon the earth. And so Peter says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So why does he use latter days in this statement? And why did Joel use it? Because God wanted us to know that the gifts of the Holy Spirit didn't go away that they remained throughout the last days, that the Holy Spirit was going to be given to us as a gift. And I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still active today. I also believe on the other extreme, there are a lot of strange things that happen that are blamed on the gifts of the Spirit. But as far as the gifts of the Spirit, they are in the latter days. Now look at what it says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about the latter years. This seems to be a different marker. We have the latter latter days in the book of Acts chapter 2, but now we have a sign for the latter years. It says, after many days, you will be visited. This is Israel. Israel has been abandoned. It's gone desolate. After 70 AD, it was destroyed, and the Romans took captive hundreds of thousands and killed hundreds of thousands. And and, And then the land was fought over by Gentiles, and Jesus said that, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so now it says, after many days, you will be visited in the latter years. You will come into the land and and those brought back, uh, of those brought back with the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. So one of the signs of the latter years is that the Jews are going to return to Israel. Not only have they returned, they become a nation. 
not only have they become a nation, they control the city of Jerusalem, which Jesus said was a sign that Jerusalem shall be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles has come in. And then in Romans 11, it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I'm gonna submit that the times of the Gentiles has ended, but the fullness of the Gentiles has not come in and that God is once again working with the nation of Israel. It goes on to say that a people gathered on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. The land of Israel was long desolate. This is a prophecy. In Ezekiel's time, 500 years before the time of Christ, that he wrote that the mountains of Israel were gonna become desolate, and they did for hundreds of years, and then God restored them. And now all of those dwell safely, and that's Israel. You will ascend, this is Gog and Magog, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all of your troops and many peoples with you. So two things that are gonna happen in the latter years. Israel's gonna become a nation. God's gonna bring them back into the land. That's happened. So we are living in those latter years and Gog and Magog is gonna come against Israel and that hasn't happened yet. Listen to another passage about the latter days. This is Ezekiel 38, 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud. He's talking to Gog and Magog to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nation may know me where I am hollowed in you, O Gog, before your eyes. Gog is a title, not a people group. It's like a king, not a people group. And so this king is brought against Israel in the last days. We believe that's right before or after the rapture of the church. And the rapture is a resurrection which we talked about just a few minutes ago, which is very powerful. Listen to what it says about the last days in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, so now this isn't last days or latter years, but latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy and having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron. Listen to what it says about the last days in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This is the moral heart or the moral compass in the last days. How The morals of the last days, the, peop, the morals people will have in the last days. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, <coughs> excuse me, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying his power, from such people turn away. And I submit that this is the, we are living in the last days, that you could go back and go one by one over those things. Men are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and they are denying the power of God. You see, churches that are more like motivational speakers encouraging people, but the power of God to save is not in those places. Let me give you another verse, just a couple more and we're done. Second uh, Peter 3, three through four says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers are gonna arise in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now you may be joining the stream, and you may be a scoffer of the resurrection that, that is called the rapture. And the Bible says you are a sign of the last days, that scoffers are gonna arise saying, it's been 2000 years, all things have come along the same. A couple more verses, listen to what it says in Daniel 4, 12. 
but you, Daniel, shut the words and seal up this book until the time of the end. Now, this is the time of the end, not the last days. And it says, many shall run to and fro on the earth and knowledge will increase. The sign of the, the how do you put it here? Until the time of the end, the sign of the time of the end is that many will go back and forth on the earth and knowledge will increase. We're living in a time that knowledge has increased greatly and men have gone back and forth on the earth. Daniel 12.1 is an amazing verse about the last days. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael the archangel, who is the prince over Israel. It says the great prince which stands watch over the sons of your people. Michael the archangel is the angel in charge over Israel. It says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as was never since a nation even till that time. This is the very end, the tribulation period. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. So during the tribulation period, it's gonna be such a perilous time for Israel that Michael, the prince over, and remember in the Bible, demons are called the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia and angels are princes as well. And Michael is the prince of Israel. So nations have princes, both demonic and angelic over them. And in the very last days, Michael will stand up. He needs to stand up, he needs to get busy because some things are happening. One more verse, and then we'll move on to our question, our Q and A. Um, in Micah 4, 1, it says, and this talks about the last days as well. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the peoples shall flow to it. One more verse about the latter days and about the return of Israel to the land. It is a sign that we are living in the last days and a very powerful sign, by the way, that we're living in the last days. Look up, Jesus said, when you see these things start to happen for your redemption draws nigh. I love that driving down the road as Christians, we look up and see the clouds and the clouds are a reminder to us of the return of Jesus. So I wanna go ahead and uh, take our first questions. So we wanna uh, go ahead and let me take a look and see what we've got here. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, good to have you here. We have, and thank you, Daniel, for being here today. Keith has the day off. And Psychman has gotten the first question today. Psychman says, so this thousand year span that shall not be named, okay, because I got frustrated a few uh, Q and A's ago about questions about the millennium, like, are we gonna have pets in the millennium? Are we gonna comb our hair in the millennium? I'm sorry, I don't mean to mock you guys. I just got frustrated over questions. So here, Psychman says, not gonna name, name the millennium. Uh, is it going to be all rainbows and butterflies or will we expect difficulties and suffering? Like going without uh, taquitos and coffee, all right? Um, I don't know if you'll be able to buy taquitos and coffee, but I, well, coffee I do know you'll be able to get and maybe shawarmas because um, Israel will be the center of the world in those days. Uh, so for the people who are alive, psych man, during that day, I'm not talking about those who have been resurrected because remember there's been a resurrection, again called the rapture, and all saints of all time were resurrected to Christ. And then we who are alive and remain are changed and are with him. Then the tribulation period happens. And then the tribulation saints die. Then they're resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. And then there's the second death after, or the, the second resurrection, which is called the second death 
after the millennium. So we are all resurrected and in our resurrected body. The people that are populating the earth are the Jewish people that were supernaturally kept during the tribulation period and any Gentiles that survived, the Bible says flesh will become rare, but if they survived. Now for those who are alive, they're gonna die, they're gonna have difficulties, life is gonna be tough at times, but also there's gonna be peace on the earth. And Jesus is gonna rule with a rod of iron and the lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will play with the cobra, the Bible says. So it will be much better than today, but it says someone will live, I don't know, a few hundred years and die as a child. So it just seems like there's more time given to people and uh, during those days and those who are alive will have difficulties. There will be deaths, there will be struggles. And at the end, remember Satan is released and there's a rebellion again, showing the rebellion of man's heart. These people all have sin nature. Their sin nature wasn't taken away when Jesus came back. And so, yeah, there will be difficulties during that time. And um, taquitos, taquitos, I don't know, but shawarmas, yes, shawarmas, which are super delicious. I like them better than falafels. Um, when you get them in Israel, they're absolutely awesome. Thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate your question. We have a question from Andre. Andre got knocked out of the number one question spot today by Psych Man. Andre says, a saved man or an unsaved woman marry one hour before the rapture. All right. She survives the tribulation. All right. In the millennial kingdom, is she free to remarry? I love your question. Um, so there's an analogy in the book of Galatians where Paul says, you are bound by law as long as you are alive. If a woman is married and her husband dies and she marries another, she's not an adulterer because when you die, you are not under the law. The point for us is, the point of his analogy is, I have died in Christ and therefore I am no longer under the law because I'm dead. I'm dead in Christ. The old man has been died. I've been buried. I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So, and now if, and Jesus said, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, that she commits adultery, unless it's for sexual immorality. So there is a reason, once the marriage bond has been broken sexually, she's free to remarry if she wants to, or she can remain in that marriage. But it's not her breaking it, it's the one that had the sexual morality. And so the question, you got two people in the rapture, let me read your question again, a saved man and an unsaved woman marry, one hour before, so the saved man, unsaved woman, she survives the tribulation and in the millennial kingdom, is she free to remarry? My answer is gonna be yes, I believe so, because he's gonna have the resurrected body. The rapture is a resurrection. And so his body will be changed into that resurrection body and all the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the clouds. First Corinthians 15 says this corruptible put on incorruptible, this mortal will put on immortality. He will be in the afterlife. He will be living with Christ, ruling and reigning during the millennium. And she will be living during the millennium. And so yes, she will be free to remarry because Jesus talks about marriage being something here on earth rather than something in heaven. And I'm trying to think, I know I know where Jesus said that. Let me think for just a second. It would be great to be able to look that up. Um, uh, it, it's, 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 it's passing me right now. But Jesus did say, 
um, when they asked him the questions, the scribes and the Pharisees asked him the beginning of Luke um, 20, maybe, where he asks they, the scribes and Pharisees are the, the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. Ask, uh, the guy had seven brothers and the woman marries all seven under the Leverite law, which was a brother raising up a child for his brother who had died through his wife. So a man and a woman marry, he dies without having children. It's the brother's responsibility to marry her and have a child for her brother that gets the land of the brother and keeps it in the family. The, the land is the reason for it. So this woman was married to seven men, had no children, which of course you would ask, why did all seven of these guys die? Maybe somebody needs to look into this. There seems to be a problem. However, Jesus said, you err in that you don't know the scriptures that in heaven, we're like the angels, you neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so when this man goes into heaven, he's either married or given in marriage. She's still being alive, now is free to remarry just as if he died. That's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Could I be wrong? Yeah, maybe. But I, I think that clearly working through the scriptures, that's, uh, that's the case. All right, so we have a question from Kimberly. Kimberly says, uh, Empress Kimberly, good to see you. Kimberly says, does God still make personal promises to people like in Luke 2, 25 and 26. Let me go ahead and look up uh, Luke 2, 25 and 26. I think I know uh, what passage you're talking about here. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen, Kimberly, and we'll take a look at it. So this is Luke 2, 25 and 26. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a just and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this is, this is an interesting passage. So we have here in the Old Testament times, a man who received a word from God because the Holy Spirit was upon him. And remember, the Holy Spirit didn't fall upon everybody in Old Testament times. But because the Holy Spirit is on him, he believes that he's been spoken to, that he will not say that he is to the Christ before he dies, or he won't die until he sees the Christ. Then Jesus is brought to the temple and he sees him. So it comes to pass. So the question, does the Holy Spirit talk to us today in this same way? Could we be given a promise by God that is not, you can't test it by the Bible, but you know that that's going to come to pass? My answer to this, Kim, Kimberly, is going to be, yeah, I think God could do this. I think it's rare. I think it can be greatly abused. I have experienced prophecy in my own life. Someone telling me the gift of knowledge, telling me the way my life is, and then telling me what God's going to do with my life. I was 19 years old. I just come back to the Lord. And I, I, I look back at it and I think, could someone have told him the things that he knew about me? Maybe. I mean, I'm always skeptical on these things, but he said I was gonna start a business, which I would get started another one. I'd started four, so he could have known that I was an entrepreneurial. 
I mean, once you start four businesses, you're probably going to start a fifth. And he said, you're going to go to another city and you're going to start a church. So that's the part he couldn't know because there's no way he could have known it because he, he could have known I wanted to be a pastor, but there's no way that he could know that I would go to another city and start another church. And I think God wanted me to know because when times got tough and over the 37 years that I've been here, times have been tough. I know God wants me here because God showed me beforehand, you're going to go to another city. I was living in Albuquerque and you're going to start a church there. And we came here in 1985 and with another couple, uh, Doug and Mary Martin, we started a church here. We had six people in our first meeting and God has blessed us over the last 37 years. So I don't want to despise prophecy and I don't want to despise the gifts of the spirit. It's just so many people, Kimberly, get so strange with spiritual gifts. They begin to get arrogant and proud. They begin to act like there's someone special because they have gifts. The Bible says if anybody thinks they are they're they're important, they're what does it exactly say? It's, it's in it's in Galatians 6. If anyone thinks that they are something when they are nothing, they are they are self-deceived. And I find that the gifts of the spirit can so easily puff someone up. It's like knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that's why right in the middle of the passage on the gifts of the spirit is the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. And, and it, it goes over all those things. And about if you have, you can have all the gifts in the world, the gift of prophecy and knowledge, but don't have love, it doesn't mean anything to you. And we see so much of that happening. And we have so many of those experiences. I realize that's my anecdotal, anecdotal, anecdotal. That's my personal experiences as, as to having this happen. It, are there people that, aren't strange when it comes to the gifts of the spirit and operate out of love and it operates exactly like it's supposed to. I hope that I'm one of them, but I don't have the gift of knowledge. I do have the gift of tongues. I don't have the gift of interpretation. I do have, I think the gift of evangelism and the gift of teaching. So we can have the gifts of the spirit are still for today, but my, my experience has been pretty bleak when people say God told me. They say things that God didn't tell them. So your question, does God still make personal promises to people like Luke 22, 25, 26 is, I think, yes. It's so hard because you can't go to the Bible and get evidence that you've heard that. So what was this guy doing? He was living in the temple looking for the Messiah. Well, they were all looking for the Messiah. He believed God had given him a word and God had given him a word. And I think we could find some other personal revelations, like Mary gets personal revelation, Elizabeth gets personal revelation, thinking of Luke. Um, of course, Jesus gave a lot of personal revelations. And does the is the Holy Spirit going today going to tell you that you're going to be alive until the, the resurrection of the church or until the rapture of the church, which is the resurrection? Um, then are you going to run around and tell people, God told me I'm going to be alive until the resurrection? And then if you die... I had a friend of mine who, I'm just going to be honest, was a very average looking guy. And in the church that we were in, there's a gal who was a really good looking gal. And he told us, God told me I'm going to marry her. And we all went, okay, if that happens, that's not going to be balanced at all. And he believed that even when she started dating someone else, 
a rather good looking guy, by the way. And even when she was going down the aisle, he believed that something was going to happen. And he was devastated because he believed that he had heard from God that he was going to marry her and he hadn't heard from God. Now, this was a four square church, Pentecostal church. We believe that we heard from God, we prayed, and but he hadn't heard from God. So my experience is more people who think they've heard from God and haven't. Do I think that God can give people personal words? No, I think he can. I don't think the weakness of people and maybe the arrogance of people when they start thinking they hear from God and the lack of love doesn't mean God can do these things. All right, Kimberly, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, we have another question from Christopher. Christopher says, were the uh, apostles saved before the upper room experience? All right, Christopher, thank you very much for your question. Let's consider the salvation of the disciples. So in the Old Testament times, you were accredited the righteousness of Jesus on the cross when you believed. And our example of that is Abraham. Abraham believed God, I think that's Genesis 18, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, which is pretty amazing. And we know from the New Testament that it was the work of Christ on the cross that saved him, that he was given that righteousness then. So when the disciples were walking with Jesus and believing him and following after him, were they accredited righteousness? Yes. But had they been born again, like happens in the New Testament? No. Because I don't believe that people in the Old Testament were born again. They didn't have the transformation we have. They were saved. They were saved on credit but you and I are transformed. And so when did that happen for the disciples? Well, they believed God and I think had they died, they would have gone to heaven because it would have been accounted to them as righteousness. But after the upper room experience, after the resurrection in John 20, I think it is, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe that is their salvation experience. Others would argue it's Acts chapter two, they tarry in Jerusalem for 50 days after the resurrection, right? I think or so, and the Holy Spirit falls upon the place there. Some would say that they are saved there because when we're, when we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit when we're born again, or we receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again. We could receive the so-called gift of the Holy Spirit, whether we see, receive that as salvation or afterwards is, is questionable. And I'm talking about looking at scriptures that say that. So um, were the apostles saved before the upper room experience? In a way, yes saved like we're saved? No. But they were after Jesus breathed on them, I believe, and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. And I think that that was their transformation when they were born again. Then they waited in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them so they could be witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. And I think that that's how we receive the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we believe, and then as we are following him obediently, living for him, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And I don't think it's just a second experience, but a third, a fourth, and a fifth. So they were born again after the resurrection, but they were believers and saved that way before they came to Christ. Hopefully that doesn't cause too much difficulty there for you, Christopher. Uh, if you have a follow-up question to it, if you have more that you would like to ask about it, um, then go ahead and give us follow-up. We only take one question per person for our Q&As, uh, but if you do have a follow-up, we welcome follow-up questions. All right, so it is good to see you guys. Good to have you joining us uh, today. 
on this Saturday as we are seeking God through his word, um, giving you to the best of, of my ability to be able to answer these questions, not saying that I've got all the answers, but just saying I've been in the word a lot of years and I'll give my best shot at seeing what I can do. All right. So Jari says, uh, question, when Paul talks about the Greeks, all the, the Greeks altar to the unknown God, that's Acts 17. What is going on there? Acts 17, 22 to 31. Thank you. Should we do this as well when we witness to our, to other religions or was this for then? All right. So this is, uh, yeah, this is a really interesting case, Jari. Um, Paul has to flee Thessalonica and Berea, and he ends up in Athens alone. And he goes to the Aragopagus, to Mars Hill, which is an amazing place. And I've preached on Mars Hill, which is awesome. And uh, I had non-believers who were listening as well. And I didn't give a message anywhere near as good as Acts 17 that Paul gave. So Paul goes to this place of philosophy, Athens. And he stands up and he gives this amazing message. And you gave us the um, the place where it's at in the Bible, the references. So let's just go there a minute. Let's just read the beginning of this. Uh, I just want to. I just want you to see how powerful or or how good this this message is. Um, and um, I'll explain why I'm hesitant about good here in a moment. So let me put this up on the screen. So it says here. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are all things very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar to the unknown God. Therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the words of everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and the earth, and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their predetermined times and boundaries. It's an amazing passage. God predetermined where we're going to be and our times and their dwellings so that we should seek for the Lord in hope that we might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. So also some of you were poets, some of your own poets have said, so he quotes one of their poets, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold and silver or stone, something sharp, shaped, um, shaped by art and man's um, devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the men whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you on another day on another matter. So Paul departed from there. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them are Dionysus, the Arabopagite woman of whatever, of Damaris. All right. Uh, Damarius. All right. So I was just going to read the beginning of it. I ended up reading all of it because it's such an awesome passage. So Paul shows up to these Athenians 
main city in Greece and a lot of people and he preaches to them and he preaches this very eloquent sermon that he quotes poets in and he uses the example. He noticed that there were statues everywhere. So many they didn't want to leave out a God that they had one to the unknown gods. And so he brings that in and he, and he brings it and some believe it's not really fulfilling. But then he goes to Corinth. He leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, he says to the Corinthians, I did not come to you with words of wisdom, but I came to you in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is Paul saying that when he did he learn in Athens that when he came with this great, powerful sermon that was full of quotes and ideas and creativity, that it wasn't very fruitful. But that when he came to the Corinthians, he came to them and just brought a really basic message and that they heard and that they believed. I was trying to see if I can find that passage where he says this, that I didn't come to you in words of wisdom, but I came to you in, in the, the power of the gospel, for the gospel's power of God to salvation. I kind of think that's the case. I think that Paul in Athens gave this great sermon of the words of wisdom and, and didn't see much fruitfulness with it and learned it's the power of God that saves and that you give the message of the gospel. And I think today that us pastors ought not to be concerned with trying to give the greatest message ever, the most flowery message or the most powerful message. I think we ought to give the gospel and the truth of the word of God. We've got to get the word of God out there. We've got to handle the word of God with all integrity, not wondering what men are going to think, but what God thinks and with all reverence towards his word. And so could you today use an analogy that has something like this in it, in a message and use it? Yes. How did Paul know that the unknown God was about God? Or was he just saying that this is a good way to make a connection? that the unknown God was about Yahweh. Um, and I don't know that we know that. But what I think is that we should not be trying to put together. I don't think that this passage is a passage on how to put sermons together. It's been used that way many times. And I'll, I'll guarantee you seminaries in preaching classes have that. I think that the fact that he goes to Corinth, he comes in the power of the gospel and not in the wisdom of man in his own words, and there's a huge church that starts there. God does a great work. We have the first letters of first and second Corinthians to this huge work and he stayed in Corinth for a long time. In fact, he was gonna leave and, and Jesus stood by him and told him to say that no one would hurt him in that place. So it's amazing. So in answer to your question, Jari, do I think that God works in that way today or, or we could use, we could preach in this way today? We can, I just don't think, that we should be trying to put together. The goal of sermon making is never to put together a really awesome sermon that people are going to go, wow, that was incredible. That was such good wisdom of the world. It was, it was just splendor. It was, you know, that's not our goal to be flowery or to, 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 from the world's perspective, do the greatest speech ever done, ever known. No, we just want to handle the word of God. Well, that's our goal to look at a passage, to find out what's there and to present what's there. And this is what I tell young pastors all the time. And I, and I don't know that the advice is heeded all that often. 
and that is don't worry about knocking one out of the park. Just pick a passage and go and present that passage, God's word. How could you do better than that? Even if I were to go and give a sermon and I knock it out of the park and the people are just, that's an amazing sermon, that's an incredible, oh, what a great message you gave, but no one's saved, what does it mean? Or if no one gets the truth of the, the passage, what does it mean? Even if they were entertained, even if they laughed, even if they cried, even if they, they stayed riveted to what I was saying, even if I made them move in their emotions, all the things that people teach that you're supposed to do with messages. I think that instead, we should just stay true to the word of God. And, and look, funny stuff's gonna come, it all depend on your sense of humor. I never plan humor in my sermons. If it happens, it just happens. I never write out jokes or try to start with something funny. I'm, I'm there to present the word of God. And I think there, there are a couple of different ways to take this me message. Again, could I be wrong? Could God be giving us an example of how messages are supposed to be? I could be, but I don't think I am. I think when you follow in the book of Acts that he goes to Corinth and then you look up in Corinth and he says, I came to you without, not in the wisdom of men, but he did go to the, the Athenians with the wisdom of men. So very insightful question, Jari, and a good question for us to think about as we are presenting the word of God to people that are around us today. So good to see you. If you're uh, here with us for the very first time, really glad that you've joined us. Uh, we, uh, if you have a question, you can just put in the comment section, just put the word question in front of it. We get a lot of comments in there. We've got a community that interact with each other, which is great. So put the word question or question mark in front of it and then write out your question. Reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense. And then I'll go ahead and give my, uh, do my best uh, to look at it through the lens of scripture. So Kimberly has a follow-up uh, and uh, the follow-up is, hi, pastor. Uh, the verses having a form of godliness, but denying its power thereof. What do you think that means? Yeah, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. I think, I think it's, it's, it means certain things in different places. You can have a very religious church where there's robes that are worn, lighting candles, and there's an emotional feeling to that. People that are brought up in it. When you're not brought up in it, you don't understand the power of those smells and the emotions of the things that were taking place within church services. But the power of God may not be present. So you go to a service, you sit down, stand up and kneel. Somebody prays to a icon or lights candles and you don't understand anything. The power of God isn't there. Or some of the most popular churches in America today do not preach the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So if their desire is to speak motivationally, to get people excited and fired up and living for God, if that's their desire, then that's the power of God's absent. The power of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of God preached directly, rightly dividing the word of God. So I do believe that that's what that means. I think it could take different forms it just means a church that looks godly, looks like it's right, but the power of God is not being presented there. All right, thank you for that follow-up question, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Rod, and Rod asked the question from Ezekiel 28, 17. And let me go ahead and see um, what I got here. Let me pull this up on the screen for you. 
I always don't know what to do while you're, while it's quiet, while I'm looking something up. Do you make noises? Obviously, I keep talking slowly until I find it. All right, so Ezekiel 28, 17. And let me just go ahead and do this. I'm going to go back here a little bit and see what the... So this is the Lamentations for the King of Tyre. And it becomes evident as you get into this that he's not just talking about the King of Tyre, but he's talking about Satan, the arch enemy, after that. So let's go ahead and I'm going to bring this up on the screen. Let's look at it. It says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. Did I get the wrong verse there? Ezekiel 28, 17. Let me just check here. Ezekiel 8, 28, 17. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with musical instruments. Let me just see if I missed. I don't think I did. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, your corrupt and wisdom, sake and splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. So I think you have the wrong reference there, Rod. Um, so let me just go ahead and talk about this. Uh, I, yes, it seems that there's a reference to the body being made out of jewels of Satan and also being able to play music. And we all can do that to some degree, right? I mean, I don't know if that's really music. It's kind of clapping, but we can all make some music. We could pound out a beat. We can make music. Um, We could use our body kind of like pentatonics does, use their body to make noises that end up getting, you know, that sound like instruments. But it seems that Satan had a certain aspect of him that was musical. And I don't know if that's taken too far or not. If you have the reference, let's revisit this rod with the right reference. If you would take time to look up the right reference, and um, if I made a mistake, let me just double check. I, it was 28, yeah, 2817. So why don't you, you get me back with the right reference. Let's take a look at it and see what we can learn looking it up. I don't know exactly where it's at. I think it's here in Ezekiel 28. But if you could look up the right reference for me and we'll revisit it. And if we run out of time today, then let's, and we can't do it today, then let's do it um, at a at another study at another Q and A. All right, Rod. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. I just want to be able to look at things in the scriptures to take a look at them. So we have a question from Kay. Kay, good to see you. I'm glad you made it in our uh, Q and A today. I know you missed the last one, but it's good to have you here. Question: Revelation 19:18. Birds eat all flesh after Christ's light kills all. But what does it mean by both and free and slaves will perish? What does free mean here in the scriptures? All right, so let's take a look at that. So I'm trying to think of the passage. This is talking about a little game I play with myself. And and most of the time I can get it, I think, but I'm not sure what passage you're talking about. So let's go here. By the way, uh, we are starting the book of Revelation next Wednesday night, Lord willing. As long as I'm healthy and everything works out, we're gonna start chapter one and we're gonna make our way through Revelation. I wanna entitle it something like Revelation for Dummies or the Idiot's Guide to the Book of Revelation. I don't think I can do that because kind of insulting in a way, the people who are there. But if you guys have a title that that, that is like that, I want this to be, I don't mean just basic. I wanna start to know that, that you can know what Revelation is saying. 
that it's not way above our heads. And yes, there are things that we have to say, I don't know what that means, but that's the case with all scripture to some degree. And um, so we're gonna be covering this. So back to your question now. So we're gonna do this start next week. If you guys think of a title for a series, that's something like, you know, the Idiot's Guide to Revelation or Revelation for Dummies, then let me know without being insulting, by the way, right? So you're asking about Revelation um, 1918. So let me get this up here. Let's take a look at it. It says um, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, the flesh of those who set on them and the flesh of all peoples, free and slave, both small and great. So your question was specifically about free and slave and small and great. Um, I would love to be able to take some time here, and I might do it, uh, and pull this up uh, in Strong's. I wish I had my BDAG. I've got my BDAG on my, my computer. You know, I could probably set it up here so I can look at BDAG even while we're doing this. I can look up, which, which is a better lexicon than Strong's. But um, let me just go ahead and pull up Strong's here, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Revelation 19.18, was that it? right? Yeah, 1918. So let me get it up here. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you now. So this is my Strong's. I do want to get, like I said, the BDAG lexicon, which is a better lexicon. Uh, and here it says, um, down at the end there, and the flesh of, of men both, free and bound, both small and great. So it looks like the men both is added there, but what I want to look at here is free. So I'm going to click on free. No, I'm going to... Um, free and bond. I'm going to click on free. Let's take a look at that first. So there's the word. It's the Strong's 2064. Uh, and you could go back to look more to get more of the, the root for it. Unrestraint to go at pleasure as a citizen, not a slave, whoever freeborn. So it's a Greek word that means not a slave and being born free. Now let's go back and let's click on bond. So this is K-A-I, K-E, K-E, the way it would be pronounced. Apparently a primary particle, um, sometimes cultivated force, also even often used, connected to with the particle of a small word. Huh, did I, let me, I, I might've pressed on the wrong thing. I might've got the and instead, I think I did, instead of the bond. Let's see. Nope, that's small, that's small and great. So I can't seem to get the word bond unless that's the word for bond. Dulos, here we go. All right, so it was um, it was reversed with the word and. All right, so dulos. Dulos is, as far as I understand, let's, before I read this, a dulos is a servant by choice. Someone who makes himself a servant by choice. It says um, from... 1210, a slave, literally or figurative, involuntary or voluntary, all right, so not by choice, frequently, therefore, in a quali uh, qualified sense of subject or subservancy, bound, bound man, servant. All right, so that's that's the the Greek on on those words. Let's consider what it's saying. So what we do know that today, 
there are free and there are slaves. There are a lot of slaves in the world. Uh, there are, unfortunately, in our day, um, with what's happened with COVID, there are, unfortunately, those that are being trafficked. And there are those that are being taken advantage of because they're fleeing their country and coming into the United States and are being taken, taken advantage of by companies. And slavery happens in China and slavery happens in other uh, Russia and other major countries. And so I wish that we could say the time of slavery was done, but slavery is happening today in various different ways. And so I think Kay, it literally is talking about slaves and free. And I think you might be able to talk about, you might be able to say, well, he's talking about people who are employer and employees, but I think he's talking about slaves and free. That in the end of the world, the world has not progressed to a place where it doesn't have slavery. Slavery is as bad today, certainly not a shadow slavery, pre-antebellum or antebellum slavery, but it's as bad today as it was in the 19th, 18th, uh, 20th century, 1900s. All right. So thank you, Kay. I appreciate that. So let's see. Um, yeah. So I appreciate your question. If you're uh, with us for the first time, it's good to have you here. Now, if you have a question, you can write the word question in front of it and then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense, means what you want to ask, and then go ahead and ask it. Um, we have a question here from uh, Abishag phone. All right. I'm not sure what Abishag is. Name in the Bible, maybe? Question. King Belshazzar's feast, when the writing on the wall happened, do you know how long the feast had gone on? One day or one week? Do we know anything about the timeline? Daniel 5.5. 5. I'm taking it that the text itself doesn't give us a timeline of how long it went on. There's a lot of interesting things we could talk about Belshazzar. Um, Belshazzar in secular history had not been, had not been found but we found that he was the third in the kingdom, even as even as it says here. So there's just some interesting about Belshazzar. Um, I can remember some of it off the top of my head, but not all of it, but it's a great study to do for the accuracy of Daniel written 600 years before the time of Christ rather than 150 years before the time of Christ, as some try to say. So uh, there's just some interesting stuff there for you to look up on Belshazzar it becomes evidence that Daniel was written hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Not all the prophecies about Alexander the Great and the King of the South and the King of the North, all of them come come to pass in in the book. So uh, five five. Let's just take a look here. Yeah, it doesn't really say. Um, in that same hour, the fingers of a man hand appeared and wrote opposite a lampstand, plaster on the wall of the king's palace. Saw part of them. So without taking time to be able to go back and look at all of, read this whole passage in its entirety, I don't know if there's a time frame given, a day or a week. It's just a party that's been going on. And um, that night was the night that the, I think it was the Persian army dammed up the, the Euphrates River and snuck into the city under the walls. And it was thought that Babylon was in, could not be taken. 
And uh, interesting today that the city of Babylon is still not inhabited. It is a place of wild dogs and, um, and wild animals make their home there. Even though it's there's a very large city nearby, the actual old city of Babylon has not been inhabited. And um, so just some very interesting stuff. All right, so great interesting things about Babylon and, and Belshazzar, but I don't know, I don't think I can help you with whether it's a day or a week or so. I just don't know, all right? So again, good to have you guys here. If you do have a question, then you can go ahead and submit that by putting question in front of it and then uh, writing out your question, making sure it makes sense and put the references with it. And we'll take time to be able to look up those references. Uh, so we have another question from Christopher. Uh, Christopher, first time here. I'm gonna take two questions from you today. Being a little unfair, I realize. Um, and Christopher said, oh, follow up. Hey there, so I'm not being unfair. Um, well, what was it then when Jesus descended into the lower parts and set the captives free? Was this Old Testament saints? Thank you, Christopher. I appreciate that. So there's a couple of different, well, there's different ways that theologians take this, which shouldn't surprise you because theologians take different stances. But I'm just going to give you what I believe. And that is that yes, Jesus descended into the lower parts of hell. And if the, the parable Jesus gives of the rich man and Lazarus, and there's a debate whether or not that should be called a parable, and they both die on the same day, and the rich man is in torment with a chasm between them, and there's a place called Abraham's comfort. And the Lazarus is being comforted there. And the rich man says, have him dip his finger in and bring some water over to me. And then he tries to send his, uh, someone back, send Lazarus back to my brothers to tell them. And, and Abraham says, if they don't believe, believe the word of God, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead, which is very much like Christ. If that's a very real place, which it could be, then Jesus descended there, gathered together all the Old Testament saints and took them up in the presence of God. These were those that were saved by credit. They believed God and it was accounted to them as righteousness and he descended. We also know that he preached to, to spirits in prison. We know he didn't suffer in hell. He did not atone on the cross. I mean, he did not atone in hell for you, as the faith movement says, the false teaching of the faith movement, that Jesus atoned for you in hell. We know that that's not the case because he said it's finished on the cross. And the Bible says all over the place, in Ephesians, other places, that we are atoned by the blood of Christ. And, um, and so um, that's what I believe is happening. He descends and whether or not that parable is a literal place, the grave or Sheol, and Sheol means the grave in the Old Testament, but it's also the place of the dead. So it's kind of this nebulous place when you start to look up all the different references to Sheol in the Old Testament, it's the place where the dead go, but it's also the place where those that love God are waiting for him. And so Jesus would have descended into the grave. This would be the terminology and ascended back into heaven with the soul of all of those who were held captive by Sheol, uh, the grave, which again, the word doesn't translate one for one over. And it is not hell. It's, it's, it's Sheol, this mysterious place in the Old Testament where they were kept. So that's what that would be, Christopher. So thank you very much for your follow-up. 
and do encourage follow-up questions just because I want to make sure that we are clear. And sometimes, you know, you answer something and you don't answer it quite right. Sometimes they've even read the question wrong and I answer it one way and the person's like, what? That wasn't what I asked. So just know you can always ask a follow-up and you can ask a follow-up in the next Q&A as well. We do these twice a week on Wednesdays and on Saturdays. So we have a question from Broken Warrior. Broken Warrior, good to have you here with us. I think it's the first time. Question, would there ever be a world where there is one world globalist leader and they would not be the Antichrist? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take out um, where there ever be a, I'm just gonna take out where there ever be a world. Let's just consider this world. And let's talk about this question. So would there ever be would there be a rise of a one world power now that is not the Antichrist in our world? And I'm going to say no, because we have the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylon is the world power, the head of gold. The Medo-Persian Empire is the breastplate of silver. The stomach and thighs of bronze are the Greek Empire. The iron legs is the Roman Empire. And then the feet of clay and iron is the revived Roman Empire, which has ten, the 10 horns or the 10 heads or the 10 countries that come together to make the coalition that's talked about in prophecy. And then a stone, which is Christ, comes out and taps it on the foot and the whole thing crumbles. So in our world, there will not be one man that will rule over the world who will not be the Antichrist. Now, let's just think this through. Let me think if I could be wrong there. What if there's a one world power that's demonstrated, somebody becomes the leader of that one world power, but he's not the Antichrist. Could he be voted out and the Antichrist voted in? Could there be a leader of the revived Roman Empire that wouldn't be the Antichrist? I don't know if there's anything in scripture that would stop us from thinking that that has to be the Antichrist as the first one in the revived Roman Empire. So maybe there could be. And, um, you know, again, if you guys know, if you guys have scriptures or if you guys think of a scripture that would say why there couldn't be somebody else before the Antichrist who would be running the revived Roman Empire in the last days, then I'd love for, for you to put that in the comment section. And you can come back later on and put it in the comment section and I'll talk about it next week because all the comments are funneled into one place for me to take a look at. So now what about a world being created? I, I don't know about other created worlds. I kind of think they won't be there. Although who am I to tell God he can't create other worlds? So would there ever be another world? And, and was that your question? Did you ask that? Um, would there ever be a world where, where there is one a one world globalist leader and they would not be the Antichrist? So I don't know about other worlds. I think it's possible that we could have a revived Roman Empire and then you could have a leader before the Antichrist. I think that's a possibility. Will that happen? Does it have to happen? I don't think there's any passages that says it has to happen, but I don't know if there's any passages that says that it won't happen. So um, we're coming to the end of our time here today. We have a service in about an hour. We are in Luke 21. Uh, we're going to be talking about where Jesus says, watch therefore, this incredible statement, watch therefore and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things that will come upon the earth. And all of these things comes from earlier in that chapter, and that's really important. And 
I, I do like Empress Kimberly, uh, Revelation Truth Quest. I do like that. Um, so we'll see. Keep giving me examples on that. Um, but we're, so we're talking about that great passage where Jesus says three things. Take care of yourself. Look at yourself seriously, somberly. And don't let your heart be weighed down. And the word for weighed down there is burdens. That, you're, that your heart would be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Carousing and drunkenness are both words for, well, one's a word for drunkenness, and one's a word for partying, and would include drunkenness. So I don't know that the Bible ever says you can't have a drink. That's debatable. And I think as far as the debate goes, Jesus drank wine. So I, I think the debate kind of goes out the window. But the Bible says not to be drunk with wine. And there are people who live to carouse and party. They, they live for the bar life. They live to, that's what they live to do. And the Bible says, don't let that happen. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. And that's what we're talking about tonight. I think it's going to be a great message. We'd love to invite you to join us. You can join us online. If you're here in Tucson, you can come down and join us live. We have two different campuses. You can look those up at calvarytucson.com. All right. So uh, five o'clock. Uh, let me see if this is a long question. All right, so Violent Stag, um, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll get a list of these questions. Um, it will be sent to me, the the um, comment log will be sent to me, and I'll look at answering this question in the future, all right? Or if you, you know, next week do, but we're out of time now. It's 5.01, and it's been really good to be here with you guys, uh, looking into God's word, really wanting to know what the truth is. Our goal is to approach the Bible to find out what we believe, rather than to, to try to go to the Bible to back up what we already believe. I think that's really the way to be on a solid truth quest. All right, so if you guys can think of a title for the series on Revelation that's starting next week, uh, we are gonna be, we're gonna be diving in. We're gonna, it's gonna be an in-depth study. We're gonna cover everything through the book of Revelation. Uh, and, but it's not gonna be super complicated because the book of Revelation isn't. And that's really important to understand. And uh, that's the way we're going to be approaching it. All right. So love you guys. It's been great um, hanging out with you guys here for a while. I'm out. We will see you Wednesday night. We'll have another Truth Quest Q&A again, Lord willing. And we'll be starting the book of Revelation that night. So maybe we'll have questions about the book of Revelation as well as other questions for our Wednesday night study. All right. God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Continue to love him with everything that you've got. And uh, we will see you. Guard your heart. All right. And we will see you uh, uh, later on.